0: Hello everyone, it's June 18th, 2019. This week we're taking a look at Psyche, both the spacecraft and the asteroid. Or is it a planetary core? Whatever it is, it needs some instrumentation in close proximity to answer such questions. Let's see what we can figure out and lift off. And we've created the tower. Welcome to episode 215 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David.
1: I'm Ben, and I'm Dennis. I could talk about the Outer Wilds again because holy cow, I still love this game. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, and holy cow, I still haven't played it, but <laughs> I've seen some videos of people doing so. Looks like fun.
1: I'm planning a like a well thought out long play um, once I get my new computer. Um, so I'm like currently scripting it. So if there's anybody listening who wants to help me like script out like an optimal play path. Uh, get in touch because i'm totally accepting co-authors and you know advice and things like that
0: would you say that it has a steep learning curve for someone who doesn't play video games
1: that's a really good question um yes Mm. and no yes in that you're gonna need some like physical coordination because there are a decent number of like platform puzzles where you have to like jump accurately in a in a specific direction and that gets really difficult if you're not on a good computer. So so the game maxes out at 60 frames per second because that's as fast as its physics tick can go. Um, and so if you're playing on a computer that can't reach 60 frames per second, it, it's going to be a little laggy and it's going to be a little difficult. So it's going to be way better on uh, Xbox than uh, than a slow computer. But with that aside, no, it, it's one of those games where you can try things over and over and over, with relatively little punishment. There, there are a couple of puzzles where if you don't get it right, you're gonna, you, you have to do enough setup that it, if you fail, you're gonna have to do all that setup over again. Um, but those are all like end game puzzles. Um, what it really gets you is when you think that you've hit upon the solution to a puzzle and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and you try 15 times and you're about ready to quit and then you turn around and realize that you fell for a red herring and the actual solution is really, really simple. And I think those are really satisfying. And I think that those kind of things are things that anybody can appreciate um, no matter how much gaming experience you have. So if you don't have gaming experience, it's going to take you a lot longer because you're not going to be able to identify the gaming tropes right like there are Mm -hmm, yeah there are hints that are easier to understand if you've seen that type of hint in another game before but other than that no it's it's really uh entry-level game if if that's what you want to want it to be and you'll you'll play the game for longer you'll get more out of it if if that's what you're doing is that a good explanation yeah good pitch sorry i could i could talk about it forever and ever (laughs) (laughs) honestly just understanding how like to get the hand-eye coordination for just controlling your character. Often that's mm-hmm. enough of a barrier that, that people will not learn to play games. It's like a very basic like gut level thing that you you just have to play it until you until you learn it there's no way around it you have to accept this interface
0: i feel like i I would be pretty good at that because i do the same thing playing guitar where you know i've said before that's how you learn to play is that you have to and it's all about hand-eye coordination and you have to play the same thing very slowly at first over and over again like literally hundreds or thousands of times Mm -hmm. before you get the hang of it that's just what you do and so that's something that i like doing but that's because i like playing guitar
1: yeah there has to be that fun there yeah that that goal like you said or otherwise. Um but I mean that's that's one of the reasons that I'm working towards recording this long play cuz I want this to be accessible to everybody and I think having a video series where you can just sit back and get like maybe 80% of the pleasure of solving these puzzles you know I'm going to try to build in all the little surprises that teach cuz when you play it you learn most of the mechanics by failing to learn another mechanic you know mm. and you like stumble across things and that's the amazing thing about reading stories on on the subreddit is like people are like okay this crazy thing happened to me and i I don't know what happened but it's so cool and everybody's like shut up don't spoil it for them just let them figure it out you know it's really good Mm
2: -hmm.
0: all right well i guess uh Let's move on to the real outer wild space. Uh, bad oh, segue, but there you go. Yeah, I like it. Spaceflight history, in particular. So we have a couple winners, and we have one wrong answer, which I think is just as good as the correct ones.
1: Yeah. So I'm taking I'm taking off my this week in SF hat, and I'm handing it over to Dennis. So go for it, Dennis.
2: Yeah. So we got two winners this week: uh, Chubby Kosi and Valentine Frank. And like David mentioned, a tremendous shout out to a phenomenal answer it just wasn't for the uh question i guess that we had <laughs> ben hallert we got to give him a huge shout out for this awesome answer and you want to talk about that ben because i know <laughs> you discovered it i only saw it just before the show because i well uh... here
1: I'll, I'll just read his tweet because it's so good so so ben hallert's uh I, I think he needs to get credit for this because it's so good he said uh this week the hint for red october csats radar unexpectedly revealed underwater submarines known as the boats by detecting their wakes the bulge uh was mm-hmm. it uh was its early death an innocent short circuit or because they knew too much and then thinky emoji <laughs> um, and so that that's csat 62778 and that that's not the
2: event, but oh boy, I wish it had been so good. The hint for Red October. It fits perfect. <laughs> so yeah, so that answer is fantastic. I mean, I guess if, if you gave me your hat, I have the authority. We have three winners this week. Jubby okay. Valentine and Ben. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay, so what was what was the actual clue? So the actual clue was the boat that's a bulge, and this was the 22nd of June, 1978, Discovery of Pluto's Moon, Sharon, by John Christie. And Sharon's how I say it, and we'll talk a little bit about that. <laughs> uh, there's a little interesting story about the pronunciation uh, that I like a lot. And so, uh, right, so this was, uh, you know, John Christie was a an astronomer who was working at the U.S. Naval Observatory. And he was a uh, University of Arizona alum and was using their uh, telescope in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is... Not the same telescope, but the same place where Pluto was discovered back in the 30s by uh, Clyde Tombaugh. So Flagstaff and the whole Pluto system apparently have a very tight relationship. So John Christie is still living there now, probably just walking around like a total boss. And uh, the way the clue comes in is that the bulge part is that what he saw was he wasn't able to resolve uh Pluto and Charon just using the kind of resolution that he had with that size telescope and so you basically saw you saw Pluto and then there was this small little bulge that was noticeably kind of poking out and that the bulge moved over time and so the best you know interpretation of that was oh i must be seeing another you know object that's moving with Pluto. And so that was, you know, the discovery. And so it took, you know, another decade before, you know, follow up things could really confirm it. But that is when he discovered Sharon. Now, as for the boat, Pluto being the uh, Roman equivalent of Hades. So it was all about the underworld. And uh, Sharon was the name of the ferryman who would take the souls across the River Styx uh, to the Underworld. Now, Christie didn't actually know about that mythology. He wanted to name it after his wife, Sharon. Uh, Or sorry, not Sharon. His wife's name was Charlene, but his nickname for her was Shar. Like, hey, Shar, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so Shar, though, wasn't quite enough and wanted to add a little... O N at the end to make it like, you know, electron, positron, more sciencey sounding. Uh-huh. So therefore Sharon became the name. And, you know, the ferryman is, you know, anybody who's in the humanities or just familiar with, you know, Greek myths, uh knows that it's pronounced Charon or, or sorry, Charon, I guess. And so there's it's a it's a shibboleth where, you know, you know it's an astronomer saying it if they say Sharon. As opposed to Karen.
0: Yeah, I suppose so.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a few of those. Like, um, I know uh, super the plural for supernovae is just blatantly wrong. It should be supernovae, but we say novae for whatever reason. There's there's a couple little quirks. Anyway, so this is you know Pluto's large moon, large enough that the barycenter, the center of mass of the system, actually lies outside Pluto. Uh, so they are more properly a uh, binary planet system between the two of them. That's kind of the definition uh. when you don't have just a planet with a moon, but you have a binary planet. So uh, they're tidally locked, which is pretty neat. So you always have, you know, one side of Pluto aimed at the same side of Charon. But then unlike the tidal lock of our moon, Charon is, or sorry, Pluto is tidally locked back to Charon. So you're always going to have a, if you're on Charon, you're always going to be seeing the same part of the Pluto looking at you. And uh, the New Horizons team, of course, flew by a couple years ago and they have come up with phenomenal Uh, naming features for pluto as well as for sharon and so some of the names of different regions and mountains and craters on sharon include mordor uh vulcan tardis uh ripley from alien darth vader i guess just vader is the name of a a mountain i think and so uh, i just love you know alan stern and the new horizons team's naming conventions it's pretty fantastic (laughs) And so um you know it's it's not the only moon of Pluto it's it's definitely the big one but there's also four more that have been discovered uh Styx, Nyx, Kerberos and Hydra all again kind of related to the underworld and I always I love this uh little uh factoid but did you guys know that uh Voyager 1 had a shot of potentially flying by Pluto back when it was you know it had the grand alignment and everything
1: yeah and it they didn't because was it that they could make another target or was it just it was faster to not fly by no
2: it? yeah it was another target it was Titan oh it was Titan that's right yeah and then that took it out of the plane of the solar system so that's why it's got yeah. that kind of trajectory
1: and and let's be honest flying past Titan was better than flying past Pluto
2: absolutely I mean, yeah I think so yeah right instead of getting uh, 80s Voyager type images we got what the New Horizons team gave us which is just yeah. you know those are some yeah. of the best space images i think period
1: we i mean we we're, we're a bunch of schmucks who know nothing but if all three of us agree that titan was a better target yeah. <laughs>
0: no offense to like pluto and that whole yeah. little system but mm-hmm. titan's this it's this well it's this titan of a moon and and oh, it, and, and it's just so dynamic and interesting I, I didn't mean to make a pun but it's just there so you have to <laughs> take it
2: yeah i think it was right after they basically kind of knew just how uh, thick titan's atmosphere was and that it had so much methane and nitrogen in there and so they were like all right let's go and and it was good too because voyager one figured out the whole kind of list of different hydrocarbons that were up in that atmosphere and so they kind of were able to use that as a um to guide the development of cassini huygens so That was important. Cassini Huggins probably like might've been very different if Voyager one didn't do the flyby. So, but yeah, like you say, all three of us are signing off on it. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) um, and then Sam in the chat's got a really good comment and I don't know the answer to it. Um, he asks, "Would the camera have even lasted until it got to Pluto? The thing was very power-hungry,
2: and and like
1: I I think our assumption is yes, because that was something they were planning. But you know, they might have planned a uh, Pluto flyby with no active camera, or maybe even just you know like one shot from the camera. Who knows?" That's a really good question. Um, If anybody can point us at at the math for that, I would appreciate it.
0: How was Voyager 1 powered?
1: RTG, I think. Well, remember, the RTG slowly falls off.
0: I guess it does take quite a while to get to Pluto, so maybe that is long enough. Because I would have thought that it would still have enough power because it's just coasting for such a long period of time. And
1: also, don't forget that you have to, I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I believe you have to put more power into the... Uh, the dish to actually get the information back. Although it, it might've just taken longer to do it. You might have to use a slower bit, right?
2: Let's think about this logically. If the RTG is, it's a matter of time. If it could have gotten to Pluto in the eighties and Voyager two was able to take images of Neptune in the eighties, then I would say that I guess it probably would have had enough power, right? Hmm. Neptune flyby was what? 86 or even I'm not sure when that was. Well, that I mean, in, in, Pluto in the latter
1: Neptune the are 80s. so close to each other that yeah, there can't be that big of a difference between the two.
0: Isn't it also that Neptune for much of its orbit is actually closer than Pluto? So
2: For 20 years.
0: Oh, just for 20 years?
2: Yeah, I think it was 79 to 99, but then the rest of the time it's far uh Pluto is farther from the Okay. Sun. But yeah, yeah, they I mean, that is how comparable they are in some ways. But that's mostly because I guess Pluto's is very eccentric.
1: Oh, man, I'm just I'm flipping through some of the photos from Voyager 2 like the EO volcano photo and Callisto. I can't <laughs> believe how good imagery, just like viscerally good, uh we got from such a early um, what I mean, just what
2: a powerhouse, you know. So cool. Pride of humanity. Yeah. There you have it, discovery of uh, Sharon by John Christie. So the clue for next week in 1969, a long road to gaping the pine and letting Ariel out.
0: That's a very surreal clue, so I have no idea.
2: <laughs> it's very poetic. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, poetic is exactly
1: the right term to use.
0: So if anyone out there thinks they know uh, what that strange, cryptic, poetic clue is in reference to, just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck.
2: Good luck, everybody.
0: Psyche is under review preview um it's at a key point so the Psyche mission so should we talk about that first because i don't know how many people are yeah. are actually familiar with it
1: Yeah yeah so sensible. so uh review preview was was kind of what i thought we were going to be doing here we're going to we're going to kind of review what's happened so far and preview its mission in the future so uh, uh Psyche just passed KDPC. KDP um so a quick uh, reminder: the uh, the NASA Systems Engineering Handbook. There's going to be a link to the PDF in the show notes, and it talks about the life cycle of of a project. So you've got pre-phase A, which is like concept studies, then phase A and B, which is like it's called formulation. It's where you're designing things and Figuring out, uh, what technology readiness levels you're at and, and figuring out what technologies you need to mature. And then, uh, C, D, E, and F are all part of implementation. And so, uh, Psyche just passed KDPC, key decision point C, which is the, which is passing from phase B into phase C. So phase C is final design and fabrication. This is a, a big moment in a probe's lifetime actually getting ready to start fabrication and and you know final design and like actually actually doing things right going from this nebulous concept into into reality starts really becoming a probe right um so uh, a quick overview uh psyche is a satellite that's going to be going uh. I hate to use the word satellite. It's a spacecraft that's going to be going to mm. the asteroid Psyche. And I'm going to let Dennis talk about what the asteroid looks like because, ho oh, oh, ho, oh, it's so good. But uh, Psyche is expected to cost between uh, $907 million to $957 million, which is really quite cheap for something that's that's doing the kind of things that Psyche's doing. It's planned to launch uh, August 2022. They have not picked a launch vehicle yet. It will be doing a Mars flyby in 2023, and then it'll be arriving at Asteroid Psyche in 2026. And uh, just a, a general overview of the way that Psyche is built, it's going to have electric propulsion. They've already selected an engine. Uh, they're going to be using uh, SPT-140, uh, which is a Russian engine. It's a Hall Effect uh, you know, plasma engine. And um, what's pretty cool is that originally they were going to be flying this thing with eight panels in a straight configuration. So four on one side, four in the other, but they upgraded it to a much better looking 10 panel configuration where you have five on one side and five on the other, and they're in the shape of a cross. So imagine three going straight out and then two. One tacked on the top, one tacked on the bottom, and then having that cross on both sides of the vehicle. And I I guess at this point, we have to talk about what Psyche looks like, because we can't talk about anything else until we talk about how cool this asteroid is.
2: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I'm just thinking about with the missions to Bennu and Yugu right now, Psyche is just going to be so different in such Mm -hmm. a cool way. Um, So so Psyche, first of all, is, is pretty big. It was the 16th asteroid discovered. So this is one of the biggies, but it is possibly the metallic core of a protoplanet. Yeah. So that's kind of,
1: yeah, flailing just, about. Imagine, you know, the Kermit GIF,
2: just like, it's so, it's so cool. I right? can imagine that. Yeah, like visualizing, right? You got this little world building up and then boom collision and then all that's kind of left uh aside from the outer debris kind of getting thrown around everywhere is this heavy metal core just left God. behind and that's kind of the key uh science cases uh essentially testing whether or not it was you know that's how it happened that you know the planet kind of like a katamari damasi right it- kind of piles up (laughs) and accretes and gets bigger and bigger and bigger (laughs) and then uh after it gets big enough you know it's molten all the way through and it undergoes differentiation the heavier stuff sinks to the center and that's why you get the metallic cores and the lower density outer parts but if that happened you know it'll have one type of signature versus whether or not it's just kind of primordial unmelted metal that uh, the thing didn't have a chance to melt through and differentiate And so if it is differentiated, I thought this is neat. You're going to basically three astronomical units away from the sun to learn about the Earth's core. Because there'll be all sorts of things that they can do with Psyche that you couldn't do to investigate our own Mm. Earth's core. But they might be, you know, comparable because, you know, the Earth was a protoplanet once too. It's in the uh, asteroid belt. It has an eccentricity of 0.14. Man, yeah, that takes it from 2.5 AU to 3.3 AU.
0: And this is about 200 kilometers on one side, or like that's roughly its dimensions. This is like 200 by 280 kilometers. So it's very, very lumpy, but it's pretty good size. And -hmm. it's all iron, or at least thought to be mostly iron. Would you say that that's about the size of, I mean, that can't be as small as the Earth's molten core, right? Because I think our core is bigger than oh, that. Oh, good question. So is this like a small yeah. planet core? I think it is, but I'm just guessing.
2: I'm pretty sure too. I don't know the Earth's core off the top of my head, but um, yeah, the, the Earth, I mean, keep in mind, the Earth is also the biggest of the terrestrial planets. So we're pretty, yeah. so if anything, I would be surprised if, let's actually look up the numbers because now I think the the cool question is, yeah, so the Earth's outer core extends out to about 2,400 kilometers. So that's about a factor of 10 bigger than psyche. Do
1: we believe that most of the asteroid belt used to be what was going to turn into the planet psyche? Or uh, is it just one piece out of a bunch of other chunks of rock?
2: Oh, yeah, it's just one piece out of a bunch of other chunks. Yeah, Jupiter kept it from consolidating all together. And so that's why they want to be clear about saying that it was the metallic core of a protoplanet so right. these sort of planetesimals there were probably you know depending on how you want to call it you know hundreds or thousands tens of thousands of protoplanets but a lot of them would then just get kind of gobbled up by other things and uh and that couldn't happen because of Jupiter
1: and even if it did like the mat like if you were to take the entire asteroid belt and put it all into one planet it would still be like way smaller than the Earth's moon mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah well so so I'm just thinking like if what if whatever protoplanet this was like whatever potential it had, it would have been really small, just like you know, comparing that to the Earth's core, like it would have been a very small planet anyway, right?
2: Yeah, and so, yeah, the way you kind of phrased it, like if it was able to consolidate all altogether, then we could almost think of it as it would have been part of Ceres's core, right? Because mm. that I think Ceres dominates the mass of the asteroid belt yeah. by quite a bit.
1: Yeah, Sam has a good note in the chat. He says uh, Psyche is roughly the size of the predicted core for Vesta, so if huh. Vesta if Vesta is small, this is kind of the class of object that we're talking about.
2: So yeah, I get, you know, the core of a big asteroid. Yeah, really okay. big asteroid. Because because yeah, Vesta is right at the kind of cusp of. Being big enough to be a right. dwarf planet, but it isn't quite big enough to be a dwarf right, planet. Right, so, right. and so that's that's the that's the really cool, exciting thing because it has other goals. You know, scientifically, uh, it wants to a- uh, date the surface, uh, which tells you some things about the type of cratering that it experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, After, you know, it was an exposed core, Uh, did it form under oxidizing or reducing conditions relative to uh, Earth's core? Because that's something that geophysicists are really interested in. And then, of course, just this will be the first metallic world Mm. to be uh, explored. Because, I mean, you know, we've orbited Mercury, but even Mercury still has like a crust. This thing appears to be kind of like an exposed metallic core. And Mm -hmm. so it's just going to be totally unlike anything we had seen before. So, uh, sorry. I'm gonna I'm
1: gonna best. play pantomime and call out from the audience. How metallic is
2: it? <laughs> There's a range, but I saw the range. I think is from something like five thousand grams per cubic centimeter to seven thousand. So you're like well in the metallic. Like it's a core. Like yeah, or at least like it's just, it's metals.
1: <laughs> Start up a forge. Let's start building. <laughs>
2: Right. Yep.
1: By the way, I I don't know if there's a better place to mention this, but does it look like a fat corn nut to anybody else? It just makes me hungry. (laughs) It's got like that little like dimple on one side that looks like the tip of the endosperm or whatever. uh, And then it's like Mm -hmm. kind of
2: flattened out. That's funny because I would that's that looks indescribable to me but saying a corn nut kind of <laughs> does a good job of describing it, yeah. Because well, it, I mean, it is not a simple shape. <laughs> yeah, G- Give give me a shape and I'll name a food that it looks like.
0: I was yeah. going to say it kind of looks like a tooth.
1: Yeah, def- definitely has a ah. little bit of a toothy look. Um, do you think of the pointy mountain is the root of the tooth then? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so kind of like around it. So So like the tooth from a nut eater, right? Because nut eaters mm-hmm. tend to have like round teeth so they can crunch on things like with a dome shape Mm -hmm. which is really strong yeah sam sam agrees with tooth all right fine so enough about psyche who cares about this beautiful uh lump of iron nickel iron out in the middle of nowhere
2: let's talk about the lump of iron that we're sending at it also named psyche so, yeah, Psyche Psyche the spacecraft has four primary instruments. Uh, there's a multispectral imager, which is going to be used primarily for distinguishing between metallic and silicate rocks on the surface. Because, I mean, there's still probably going to be some silicates there. Or maybe not. And this is the one that uh, when we talk about sort of the, some of the issues that the uh, spacecraft has run into during its design phase is that... The camera or this multispectral imager is based on uh, essentially kind of all the cameras that Curiosity has uh, right now. So mass cam, uh, the Mars hand lens imager and the Mars descent imager uh, that those sort of optics are all kind of uh, heritage that have gone into this multispectral imager for Psyche. Uh, it also has a magnetometer, as you can imagine, a big chunk of metal, you know, might have some uh, (laughs) uh, residual magnetic field but that'll also help with uh, elemental composition. Or no, I mixed that up. It is the gamma ray neutron spectrometer that is going to be used for elemental composition get an idea of what type of Uh, Minerals are present because for reasons that are way, way beyond me, that can distinguish between a differentiated core versus a, you know, unmelted metal. And then uh, the fourth uh, scientific instrument is an X-band radio system, which will be used for probing the interior. And so uh, those will all be kind of doing that, doing their thing. And it also, I thought this was neat, has a uh, laser for deep space communication uh, network that people are working on now called the Deep Space Optical communication and so it's essentially right kind of a communication network f- with uh lasers instead of radio
0: which is amazing considering i wouldn't have thought something like that could work so far out in space mm-hmm. or it, that it just wouldn't be feasible because mm-hmm. uh you're talking about what three au and they're going to use a laser to communicate back with earth that's incredible and and it's supposed to deliver like 10 to 100 times not the bandwidth what's it called because we talked about this before the throughput right oh yeah i yeah, didn't want to confuse those two <laughs>
2: Yeah, so, Ben, you want to talk about the trajectory?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're going to mostly be talking about numbers here, but uh, there are four planned orbits right now, and almost certainly it's going to be there for longer, um, right? So, this isn't one of those missions where we're doing a sample return and, and we have to leave at a certain point. So, it's probably going to be there for a while, and I wonder if it's actually going to go visit another target uh, and kind of do a dawn thing because, you know, ion propulsion. right. Uh, so it's, it's got four primary orbits it's going to do. There's orbit A... Um, which is going to be orbiting at 668 to 727 kilometers, and it'll be studying the magnetosphere. Then it'll go down to orbit B, which is 262 to 320 kilometers, and it'll study the topography of the planetoid, the planetary core. Then it'll go into orbit C, which is even lower. That's 146 to 220 kilometers, and it'll start doing gravity mapping. And then it'll go into orbit D, which is like the primo orbit, at 53 to 96 kilometers, which is so, so low. And at that point, it'll start doing uh, composition studies.
2: That's so cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's going to be cool to see this progression as we learn more and more and more about the about the core as we get closer and closer and closer. I, I can't call it an asteroid. I have to call it a planetary core because it's so much cooler.
2: Yeah. I mean, for context, uh, Hayabusa 2, I mean, obviously it gets closer during the the touchdown, but 50 kilometers is where a lot of like the really good close high-res images that it has are taken from. So that orbit D is going to be super exciting. I
0: suppose that this is large enough that it can do an actual orbit, although it's going to be a very somewhat tricky one because, it's you know, this is a very lumpy gravitational field that yeah. it's kind of moving through because, mm. which I guess is why it says, for example, 660 through 727 kilometers, because that might be the altitude at any given point, somewhere between those two. Oh. Maybe that's what that means.
1: Well, and keep in mind that it's, it's not going to be orbiting like we think of, right? It, it's going to be constantly moving itself around, changing orbital parameters in every direction. Um, so it's going to be a pretty sloppy orbit, um, but, you know, it will be relatively, you know, recognizable as an orbit. But yeah, d- definitely more like a window than an, than an actual orbit like we would think around a planet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I guess from there we should talk about why this might get delayed because mm-hmm. this mission, it has more than a couple things going against it. It mostly comes down to the window that they want is kind of like bumping up against the Europa Clipper mission. I don't know how often this happens, but there's only so much room at JPL. And one big problem is they actually need the same clean room as the Europa Clipper and they can't use it. So that's an issue. They might have to move off-site. And if so, I don't know where they would go. I'm sure, you know, there's like clean rooms all over the country and the world, but which one could accommodate a spacecraft like this? Like, what are the requirements and, you know, plus you have to have I guess other things for that facility and you have to have the engineers, which is also another problem because JPL does not have, they just don't have enough people to both maintain the software development as well as the hardware. So that's another issue. (laughs) Um, Let's see. So so this might get pushed back.
1: So SSL, which used to be Space Systems Laurel, and actually, isn't SSL now called called something else.
2: Well, anyway. Maxim? Maxar. Yeah. Maxar.
1: So so they're in Palo Alto. It it seems like if they're going to go off site, it seems fairly likely they'll just go to Maxar's clean room. Um, I don't know. I genuinely don't know how these things work, but that seems reasonable to me. But yeah. I mean, you know, they could they could go anywhere. There are plenty of other places to go.
0: They would still have to find the technicians and yeah. engineers to, mm-hmm. you know, work on it. And so, I think that that's led to possibly a request for more people, but that's something that you have to go to what, the Senate subcommittee for whatever for, and because <laughs> I uh-huh. can never remember these names of committees, but yeah, that's an issue. There's also a hardware delivery issue, so like not 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 just integrating the hardware, but there's also the problem with the previously mentioned, what's it called, the deep space communications or the uh, deep space optical communications, that bit of hardware, Uh that might not be delivered on time. And so... If that doesn't get delivered, I guess they're not going to do the mission because you need some way of communicating and maybe they don't have a plan B for using something more traditional. I suppose that this whole design centers around having something like a space optical communication type of a system. That kind of makes me wonder if it gets delayed, right? When's the next window? Because I suppose it would be more or less this time next year because Psyche has an orbital period of almost five years. So do the math there. I don't know about the inclination and and all that. And
1: you also have to hit Mars unless they choose a totally... Oh, a totally right. different trajectory. Right. So, so that'll be like five times two, maybe. I mean, it can't, it can't be ten years out, but hopefully, uh, there'll be another good conjunction.
0: If they need a flyby, then yeah, that definitely complicates things. And I mm-hmm. totally forgot about that. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, luckily this is a mission with plenty of delta v, so their their actual opportunity is probably pretty big. I mean, they they probably have like a month or two to actually get off the ground. That might be overstating things.
2: So I didn't realize it. So that so this optical communication kind of. So that's going to be their primary way of
0: I think so. Okay, so that you do bring up a good point. I'm not sure I thought that it was although it, it is a technology demonstrator, so maybe that means does that mean that you know there's a primary means of communication and that's just what's going to be demonstrated? You might be right. I don't know how experimental it is. Mm-hmm. So
1: I mean, I feel like we're we're pretty far away from relying on uh laser communication as our primary method, but I mean, who knows? I I certainly don't.
0: Moving on to short and sweet. We got three this week, standard short and sweet. What's the first one, Dennis?
2: First one is India's Chandrayaan-2 has a launch date. ISRO has announced a launch date of July 15th for the country's second lunar mission. Chandrayaan-2, which consists of an orbiter, lander, and rover, and aims to touch down close to the south pole, will be launched on a GSLV Mark three. The lander Vikram will have four science payloads, and the rover Pragyan will carry two while traveling up to 500 meters across the lunar surface. The landing is expected in September of this year.
0: And more news of the Indian space program. They also have plans for a space station. The ISRO chairman K. Sivan has announced plans for the development and launch of an Indian space station by 2029. The station will be approximately 20 metric tons in mass and will serve as part of the Gaganyaan mission, which will carry three crew aboard an Indian-built space. Into Leo, the spacecraft will dock with the station, where the crew will be able to perform microgravity experiments. And Israel has not disclosed what the cost of the station will be, so that's important to know, but nothing yet.
1: And finally, Sophia is getting some improvements. So Sophia the infrared telescope shoved inside a 747 is updating its procedures to collect even better data. The spacecraft is used to ascend above the IR blocking moisture in the lower atmosphere and NASA is going to be sending it even higher into the atmosphere. They'll also be flying the telescope more often thanks to being funded beyond their proposed $73 million budget to $85.2 million. Okay, stand by We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have some actual corrections this week as well as some other things, uh, cats included, (laughs) but we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. So I guess we'll do the corrections first. And the first one is about your last week's This week in spaceflight history.
1: In this week, SF, I had mentioned that um, Valentina might have suffered a head injury, which caused her to vomit on orbit. That was what Valentin Frank had mentioned in a tweet. And so uh, he did some extra research and came back. And I just wanted to give an update because it's something that we said might have been a thing. And Valentin has concluded that it's almost certainly not a thing. So... He says that he only found one source that said that she hit her head when they were uh, erecting the vehicle on the pad. Um, But that one source had no primary source cited. And obviously there were no other sources that agree uh, with that. So Valentin's conclusion is it's probably not true. But, you know, who knows? Because this was kind of a dangerous vehicle to to go to space in. So Mm. yeah, but just just a quick update. We I was a little bit cagey about it when we when I talked about it last week. I just want to increase the level of caginess there.
2: Yeah. And we have uh, a proper correction burn. And so I want to say thank you to AD who highlighted it on our uh, Reddit. We were talking about Spitzer. And I was trying to get at the point that uh, longer wavelength infrared, you really need to cool that stuff down. And so the lifetimes are limited by how long you can keep your instruments nice and cold. Because remember, 50 Kelvin was too warm for most of Spitzer's instruments. So uh, I... As an example, I uh, tried to throw out uh, the Herschel Space Observatory, which was essentially all longer wavelength instruments. And I had said, you know, I didn't know the number, but I felt like it was up there briefly for something like maybe as short sure as six months or a year or so. And Momo sapiens has given us the uh, correct time. It had coolant that was uh, rated to last for three years, but it actually was up there for four years. And so uh, that just seemed those four years went by fast. So I guess I didn't give enough credit. So, yeah, Uh, because, I mean, Herschel, doing those longer wavelength things, it was an absolute kind of beast when it came to mid and far IR astronomy. So thank you for that correction.
1: And then I got I got two quick mentions. Um, So first, uh, Justin Cowart, um, who was one of our earliest uh, interviewees. He's a Ph.D. candidate and a geologist and just a, a total nerd. He uh, does like, you know, his own fo- uh, photo post-processing. It's really cool. But he wants to start an oral history project on Apollo Mariner Viking Voyager. And he wants to specifically talk to project scientists and kind of um cement some of the behind the scenes history on operations and research decisions and that kind of thing. And, uh, I, I am so a hundred percent behind this project. Um, you know, oral histories are, are really important. And so he's, uh, starting to look for interviewees. So if you happen to know anybody who worked at NASA during that time period, we really, really, really would appreciate it. If you'd get in touch either with us or with Justin, um, he, on Twitter, he's J C C W R T uh, short for Justin Cowart, probably Justin C. Cowart, I think. And just any information you have would be uh, greatly appreciated. This is this is something that is gonna improve the quality of human life, right? Like I, I know that's like really mm. dramatic and and kind of bullshitty, but like this is something that really is gonna be a good thing to have in the future. And we're at the point in time where we're beginning to lose this information uh the, the human impressions. If we don't get them down now, we're we're not gonna have them for very much longer. Um so Please get get in touch with Justin and uh, support this really awesome project uh, here on the show. We're gonna do everything we can to uh, to help him build this little archive. Hopefully, we're gonna get to play some of his interviews on the show, even if it's just like a special episode. We're like, hey, here's an interview that Justin did, and let's you know, let's yeah. play that as its own <laughs> own separate like halfway episode or something. But very very cool idea, and I, I want to see this happen.
0: Yeah, there is a lot of documentation, but there's not as much as you would think, yeah. especially like in oral history. Like, yeah. I, I mean, there's, uh, it feels to me like there's just a handful of documentaries and that's about it.
1: Yeah. And they're, they're pretty, pretty short. Yeah. Or, or shallow, I guess. And then finally, we've talked about on the show before, I believe, but the Rocket Cat Fund uh, needs some help. So Rocket Cats is an organization run by Paula Whitney and Chris Hoffman. It's a cat rescue, but they are specifically helping cats with special needs. And they're trying to raise $15,000 because they just had a run of cats with pretty bad medical histories that needed a lot of money dumped into them to keep them up and running. And so they they need uh, a cash infusion. So please go donate. Um, Even if it's just a couple bucks, they, uh, they are absolutely deserving of it. And the fact that it's space themed has absolutely no bearing <laughs> on the fact that i'm uh, <laughs> bringing it up on the show so just just google rocket cat go fund me and you'll find them or, or I'll put a link in the show notes as well, obviously.
0: Let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. We got three confirmed launches <laughs> and one that I guess is confirmed, but we don't know exactly when.
1: Yeah, first up is an Ariane 5 ECA flying EUTELSAT 7C and AT&T 16 So this is flying on June 20th at 21 hours, 43 minutes UTC. And uh, EUTELSAT 7C is an electric propulsion KU band. You know, we we know Uh, EU TELSAT, and then uh, AT&T's satellite was originally going to be DirecTV-16, but AT&T bought DirecTV, so they get to name their satellites whatever they like. And again, that's flying on June 20th at 2143 UTC.
2: And next up on June 21st, we've got a Proton-M Block DM-3, which will be taking the Spectre-RG observatory to L2 ultimately. And so uh, this is a, a suite of five telescopes, uh, all high energy from UV to X-rays. It's been delayed since 2013, but they're planning for a nice seven and a half year lifespan when they get it up there. And so this will be launching uh, with an instantaneous window at 12, 17, 14 UTC on June 21st from Baikonur.
0: And next up is a is the Falcon Heavy launch with uh, STP-2. So this is, um, I mean, let's hope this goes up. So this is um, launching LightSail, Deep Space. Atomic clock, which I think we talked about that last week, and then also just a bunch of other satellites. Uh, we have some space weather monitors, a Taiwanese remote sensing satellite, green propulsion. I don't know what that is. Maybe that's testing a green hypergolic, maybe something like that. That's my yeah, really exa- cool.
2: exactly, environmental friendly uh, propellant.
0: Exactly, that's awesome because I really like that. Like I just love this whole idea of this green hyper goal because it's just so useful. At least I hope it turns out to be. So yeah, those types of satellites just um, a whole hodgepodge, mishmash, whatever of uh, satellites. And that is launching, as I said, June 25th. And the window for that is 0330 UTC through 0730 UTC. So it's a four-hour launch window. So nice and long launch window uh, launching from Launch Complex 39A at Kennedy Space Center. So that's a good time for people on the East Coast and the West Coast to watch it.
1: Uh, so yeah, just just backpedaling real quick the green mission is actually gpm the green propellant infusion mission which we've talked about on the show before so mm-hmm. if that sounds familiar yes it's it's this spacecraft and then uh, just barely before our next episode ms-11 is going to be coming home uh, so that's uh monday the 24th the farewells and hatch closure coverage begin at 3 30 p.m eastern time uh, the hatch closure is scheduled for 4, 10 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and this is going to be Kononenko, uh, Saint-Jacques, and McLean are coming home. All pretty public-facing people, especially uh, Saint-Jacques has been doing some really great videos on YouTube that I've really appreciated. Um, the undocking coverage is going to start at 7 p.m. Eastern time. The actual undocking will occur at 7.25 p.m. Eastern time, um, and then the deorbit. orbit Uh, burn and landing coverage will begin at 9.30 p.m. And the deorbit burn is scheduled at, it says 9.05 p.m. So I think that's 9.50 p.m. (laughs) Eastern time. And the landing is scheduled for 10.48 p.m. Eastern time. That'll happen right before the Falcon Heavy launch at 11 Eastern. So oh, you, right, can, right. you can get this nice run up uh, and have a very spacey Monday.
0: And then one last launch, which sometime in late June is going to be an Electron launch. And that's launching, well, the, the name of the mission is Make It Rain. That is apparently in honor of Spaceflight Industries, which is based out of Seattle, where it rains a lot, they say, but that's actually not true. I, I just heard some statistic that says that Seattle does not get the most rain. Um, of all the cities in America. It, it, it's like 40 or 50th, some, ah, something like that. Yeah. It's a
2: lot lower than I would have
0: thought. Yeah. It's not as rainy as people say it is. But anyway, yeah. Um, The name of the mission is Make It Rain. And this is a rideshare mission for Spaceflight Industries. And it will be launching Black Skies Global 4 to U.S. Special Operations Command Prometheus and Melbourne Space Program's ACRUX 1 or ACRUX 1. So I'm not sure what all of that means, but it's a U.S. Special Operations Command satellite.
2: Yeah, this ACRUX 1 is a student built cube set.
0: Okay, so that's a cube set. All right.
2: Student builds always awesome yeah
1: alrighty so those are your upcoming
2: spaceflight events
0: let's deorbit the show then and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music
2: we record live on Sundays at 9am pacific 12pm eastern thank you so much to our $5 and up patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on fly if you
1: want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen thank you to heartvic90 for leaving us an iTunes review you can also visit the slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources
0: for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
2: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. or Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you